Exercise. With training, everyone sings in harmony. What kind of music is your organization creating? Write down whether the following statements are true or false in your business. One, all employees perform each aspect of their job with a high degree of excellence and consistency. Two, results are somewhat predictable because training and skills are consistent. Three, each supervisor would give a similar answer for each question or problem. Four, each employee would give a similar answer for each question or problem. Five, client treatment is similar no matter who the client deals with in our company or department. And six, all staff members know what is considered good performance or attitude. If you answered false to any of these statements, you aren't serious enough about training. Without training, employee activity will be intermittent, inconsistent, moody, maybe even indifferent or rude, because you have not set standards. With proper training, every employee will know the ideal procedure for initial contact with a client, the questions they need to ask every single client, no matter what, and the follow-up procedures that you absolutely insist upon. The more proactive training you have, the better the everything in your organization. This book will take you very deep into all these issues, but the purpose of this chapter is to emphasize that the most important thing you can do is to insist upon mandatory and regular skills training. Training sets standards. Deliberate and consistent training radically improves employees' understanding of company objectives and helps to raise and set standards of performance. If you don't train, you can't expect people to get to the next level. That's why most companies stay small or have to continually waste time addressing the same issues and problems over and over again. Training makes money. Quality training is guaranteed to make you money. In the case of the company going after manufacturers, it had been in a four-year decline when we started our program. With consistent training, it experienced a dramatic and much-needed increase in sales. Your sales team knows what to do and can handle any situation with ease because you've covered it in your weekly sessions together, right? It's the same with customer service, which you will learn more about in Chapter 3, and every other area of your business. When clients experience consistent, top-notch service, no matter who they are dealing with in your organization, they will keep coming back. Without training, you'll lose clients that might be saved if you proactively address issues as they arise. Standardized client interaction and follow-up procedures mean that you are constantly building better client relationships that will lead to repeat business and referrals. Again, this book will give you a full formula for all these things in subsequent chapters. Training also saves you money because it reduces employee turnover. When employees know exactly what to do in any situation, they have the tools to thrive in your organization. Training boosts confidence and reduces stress. Because training also sets a clear path for performance, it will be easier to measure and reward employees for exceeding performance standards. With organized and regular training programs, your company or department will be a better place to work. Train or be derailed. The health of your business is not so different from that of your body. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If you were choking, would you rather your friends try to learn the Heimlich maneuver right then and there, or would you prefer that they already had training and practice doing it? Training 
is proactive. It keeps your company healthy and prepared no matter what crisis arises. If you don't train, you force everyone to be reactive, so your chances for survival decrease dramatically. Training can save lives. I taught self-defense in New York City when I was 25, training many top executives at some of the biggest companies in the world. I remember presenting to a major oil company when the chief of security said that he thought self-defense training was a bad idea. People will get false confidence and probably get in more trouble. I asked him if he had any kids. He had a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old daughter. Two weeks prior to that meeting, there had been a horrible situation in Queens where an 18-year-old girl was dragged onto the roof of her building, sexually abused, and then thrown off the roof to her death. I asked if he remembered the story. He did. The girl had the attacker's skin under her fingernails, showing that she had made a gallant fight. In a life-threatening situation, you're in one of two categories. Either you have no training and you're guessing or you've had training and have very specific ideas of what you can do. I asked the executive which category he'd rather his daughters be in, trained or untrained. He said, I see your point. It's the same with any area of your business. When your employees confront any situation, they're in one of two categories. Either you've addressed it and trained them, and they have the information they need to deal with it, or you haven't addressed it or trained them, and they're going to be guessing. Which category would you rather have your staff be in? Some people fear that they won't remember things when they're in crisis, but your brain has a crisis scan function that kicks in during those situations. When adrenaline is pumped into your system, your brain speeds up searching for what it has available to get you through the crisis. Over the years of teaching self-defense, I heard many examples of this where someone in a crisis would not just remember what to do, but would even remember me teaching him the move. When I was 18 years old, I drove a car off a cliff while racing a friend on a rainy night. Not a very smart move. As I was coming around a curve, the car broke from the wet ground, and there was another car coming at me. I punched the gas and spun the wheel at exactly the right time to avoid crashing into the oncoming car and regain control. But the road curved again, and there was no way I was going to make it. I had sped up to get out of danger, and now I was going too fast. The car slid off the road and hit a lawn at 80 or 90 miles per hour. I felt the car double its speed as it careened across a slick lawn. The car hit a tree, spun sideways around the tree, and toppled 265 feet down a cliff. An untrained body would have stiffened up with fear and broken every bone. The only reason I'm still here is because of my karate training. As my brain signaled crisis, my body knew from years and years of karate practice not to tense up and resist, but to relax. I was floating around on the inside of that car. I was bouncing off the sides, the steering wheel, the roof, and before each impact I would block my face from being hit. The car finally came to a crashing halt in the treetops. I survived that night because of training. The point is that any kind of training can intervene in a crisis or in any situation that you want to change. Here's another example of a situation that was not a crisis, but that posed a serious challenge in my company. We have a massive radio campaign that is driving leads to our sales team. People call in response to the ad to get more information sent to them about what we do. We tell them that in order to send them the right information, we need to know a little more about their business. We ask a few questions about what they do, and then we ask them what their two biggest challenges are in growing their business. 
In the process, if it seems appropriate, we mentioned that as an alternative to just receiving information in the mail, they can sign up for one of our training programs on the web. We had five new salespeople who started in a single week, and about five out of ten prospects responded to that alternative offer by saying, "Well, send me the information, and then I'll decide." This went on for a week, with hundreds of people throwing up this objection, for which the salespeople had no comeback. The minute I heard this, I trained them to use this script. Well, sir, I'm happy to send you the reports. In fact, they're already on their way. But let me tell you what happens to people who receive our reports. Either they read the reports and are so impressed with the information they end up signing up for the web seminar I'm talking to you about now, or they're in such a reactive mode, reacting to their business, that they never take the time to read the reports or to improve their business, and they end up doing nothing. My question to you is: Are you the kind of person who would rather take action and learn how to double your business? Or are you too busy reacting to your current business to take the time to learn the skills to improve it? Using this script, the salespeople improved their closing ratio. Of the prospects who would usually use that objection, half would sign up for the web seminar right there on the phone. So performance improved immediately just by adding another piece of training to the process. This situation was not exactly a crisis, but we were losing half our prospects because no one took the time to think about what would be a logical comeback to that particular objection. This shows that a little training goes a long way. So let's not have people making up what they're going to do in a crisis or in any other situation in your company or department. Let's have them know what to do in every situation because you address it weekly. Repetition is key. When designing your training programs, remember that repetition is the key to pre-programming your company or department to run like a machine. The design of the Ultimate Sales Machine program was conceived with the simple law that no one gets good at anything without repetition. Karate requires tremendous discipline. You're just repeating moves over and over. This is true of tennis, golf, or any other sport. Practice, practice. Practice, and then when you've begun to master your move so that you know what to do automatically, it gets exciting. But pig-headed discipline comes first. Just how serious are you about your company? Are you playing at business or taking care of business? According to Sun Tzu in the Art of War, one of the five essentials of victory is this: He will win whose army is animated with the same spirit throughout all its rank. How are you going to animate your whole team with the same spirit? Three words: training, training, and training. Most of the better training programs come in and blitz an organization with a lot of information, and then they leave. The staff has a nice, healthy glow for about a week afterward. The perception is that you've received a lot of value because you gained a lot of information, but in reality, without continuous follow-up. Very little sticks from a one-shot training. That said, one-shot training is better than no training. But you're about to learn that there is a better way. By rotating core material regularly, the same concepts are constantly reinforced and reiterated. Skills are impacted immediately in either training method. Yet over time, skills are impacted permanently with consistent repetition. When you get all of your people speaking the same language and following standardized procedures, internal communication improves dramatically because everyone shares a deep and rich pool of the same knowledge base.
Taking the time management skills you learned in Chapter 1 as an example, let's consider what the typical learning curve looks like and why repetition is so essential. Right after someone does some time management training, there is an immediate increase in skill. What happens after training occurs if there is no follow-through? There is an immediate fall-off of the newly learned skill. That's where most companies and programs stop. Hence, some minor skill remains, but it's not like you're going to magically turn everyone into a time management expert with a single training experience. What I do in my own companies and with clients is constantly teach the same information again and again until the skill is permanent. The skill improves again with another training session, but there is greater improvement because it's the same material being covered. The fall-off occurs again, but it's not as dramatic as last time. Then another training session takes place, and then another, and the skills improve even more, and the drop-off is even less. You can see that with each training session, mastery is that much closer. How to run a training session To begin a training session, people should be told what to expect, what will be covered, how long it will take, how the information will be covered, the objective of the particular session, the obtained skill or knowledge that you hope they will gain. When people have a clear understanding of what they are about to hear and see, they will be mentally prepared and focused for the training. It is important to create a training environment that is conducive to learning. Make it fun. Create an open environment where people can make comments, jokes, and suggestions without reproach. This isn't military training. People should look forward to it because they know it will be interesting and stimulating. As I mentioned in the beginning of this chapter, learning is not something most people do naturally. Since most of your staff will be reluctant to take time to train, you must make training fun, interesting, stimulating, and even an exciting experience. And above all, training must be mandatory. Put it on a schedule as a non-negotiable commitment. No doctor's appointments, no dentist appointments, no excuses. Even one-person armies must treat it this way. Set a schedule and commit to following it no matter what. As you will learn in Chapter 8, we retain significantly more information if we both see and hear it rather than just hearing it. But we retain the most information if we are actively involved in our learning such as when we participate in role-playing or other learning exercises. At the very least, always use visual aids in your training because they drastically increase retention. Data dumps are okay for initial sessions when you need to relay a lot of information. However, the highest retention will come from practical application and regular and consistent involvement. That's where you get the big gains in productivity. So don't just create a training booklet and hand it out. Set the time, reserve the room, and make the training session mandatory. Encourage questions, jokes, insights, participation, and humor. Treat all questions with respect, no matter how pointless you think they are. Keep your people focused, but don't make them feel stupid. There are a variety of training methods and tools you can use to suit your material. It is a good idea to mix a few methods to meet your needs and keep people awake. Let's consider a few. Lecture format. This means you talk and they listen. This method is good for a data dump, but not for anything that requires substantial input or group processing. Group questions. 
You present broad questions to the group and ask for a show of hands. This method keeps people engaged because it is interactive. Asking group questions is also very helpful if you want to show what is at stake in a given training session. Leading people to their own conclusions is much more powerful than you telling them what that conclusion should be. You might ask the following series of questions. How many people get frustrated when they don't know the answer to a customer service question? How many of you would like to be so much of an expert that no matter what comes up, you are prepared to deal with it? Who here thinks that training and role-playing will give them additional insights into how to deal with more situations? Asking these types of questions can guide a group to the conclusion you want them to make. Group Discussions As in the group questions format, you are facilitating discussion around a given topic or issue and want specific feedback from your group. This keeps everyone engaged, but here the substance of their answers is crucial to the training session. For example, if I'm teaching a seminar and ask, who here has done workshops at their company? I might get a show of hands, but then I ask, how's it going? At this point, I'm going to get specific feedback from which I can extract common themes that need addressing in the training session. Demonstration Training with this training technique, the supervisor demonstrates how the employee should perform the task. Perhaps you are working on making appointments. The supervisor sets the scenario. She's calling a prospect for the first time, and her goal is to get an appointment with the CEO. The imaginary receptionist answers the phone. The supervisor delivers the script of what everyone on the sales team will say to get past the receptionist and through to the CEO. After demonstrating, the supervisor will then solicit questions and probe to determine the level of understanding from the employees. The supervisor will then ask the employees to demonstrate back to the supervisor, which leads to role-playing. Role-playing. Role-playing is an extremely effective way to train. Let's take customer service as an example. A company that is looking to be at the top of its game will already have outlined the seven most common customer service issues. Even though you may have a manual that lays out what to do in various situations, role-playing can really drive it home. Role-playing helps each person automatically do what he's supposed to do, even if he's rushed, challenged, or surrounded by distractions. The other day I was calling my cell phone company because my phone magically started receiving about six text messages per second, everything from the news to the weather to horoscope predictions. I was calling to get this feature shut off, and I'll admit I was impatient because the customer service person didn't seem to know what I was talking about, even though I thought I was explaining it clearly. My wife was sitting next to me when the customer service person hung up on me. My wife's thought was that I deserved to be hung up on because I was impatient with the customer service rep. Except now, I was furious. If a customer is unhappy, have you trained your staff to hang up on them or to console them? In reality, this scenario was disastrous, but as a role play between a supervisor and a customer service rep, it would be a fabulous tool. With the supervisor acting more and more obnoxious, the exercise would serve the dual function of preparing employees for the worst and providing comic relief for the training session. So, yes, you can have fun and joke about irate customers, like me, but it sets the tone of how those people are to be treated, not hung up on, but nurtured. You can tell when you encounter an organization where this training has been done and when you get one where it has not been done.
hot seats going deeper. Hot seats are a highly effective method of improving skills. I use these constantly with my clients. As we work to implement a new program or procedure, I hot seat sales reps. I drill down again and again on minute details until they get everything practically perfect. For example, we had a client who sold office equipment. If sales reps went to the office manager in a prospect company, they would get nowhere. The typical office manager did not have the authority to approve the budget for replacing the major equipment, like copiers and computer systems, even if they were 15-year-old antiques. The attitude was always this, as long as it's working, don't fix it. Office managers might know the long-term advantages of upgrading their office equipment, but often they were ineffective at persuading senior management to spend the money. My client wanted to get to the CFO instead, but reps found that most CFOs bunted them right back to the office manager because that's who's in charge of the office equipment. To get around this, we deliberately went after the CEOs, knowing that they would bunt us down to the CFO. We worked on this CEO bunt method and perfected it. Hot seats were key to implementing the CEO bunt because I constantly found that the sales team had not done some step in the process we had expertly laid out. For example, a key ingredient to an effective CEO bunt is to give that CEO a tool that he or she can pass to the person you really want to reach. Usually that's a follow-up memo, yet I cannot tell you how many times hot seats revealed that the salesperson had not done this step. I put the salespeople in the hot seat and asked them questions on every single part of this process until I was sure they absolutely had it down and would do it right the next time. I even did this with the owner of this company. Just from this one process, this team went from making four appointments a week to thirty appointments a week. But to be clear, it took five months of pig-headed determination and discipline to turn this company into the ultimate sales machine. Case Studies as a Training Method As I just did with the office equipment story, and as I do throughout this book, your training should use concrete examples and case studies in which the concept you are teaching made a big difference. People remember stories, especially when they are dramatic or humorous. There are two ways to include case studies in your standard training. One case study should show how someone did everything wrong and how that made the situation worse. Another case study should show how someone did everything right and how well it worked. Exercise Right now, for your area, think of a case study that illustrates a great point about how something should be handled. Write it down in as much detail as you can remember. Test before and after For every concept or skill you teach, develop a test on that area for the staff. And if you really want to see your training stick, give staff the test before they take the training. That shows them how much they're going to learn, and more important, makes the answers stick when they learn it. Then, after the training, they take the tests again and feel accomplished when they get all the answers correct. The Spot Quiz In the companies I've run, spot quizzes are an institution. The staff comes into the weekly meeting, and I hand out a spot quiz, like you used to get in school. The staff groans, laughs, and makes jokes, but little by little, whatever you cover again and again eventually sticks. What are the six steps to time management, the twelve steps to get an appointment, the seven steps to selling, the six questions they'll ask every prospect? They know the answers. 
I have had them so programmed that if you quizzed some salespeople who haven't worked for me in ten years, they'd probably still be able to fire the answers right off. Technology training can be a boon to productivity. I remember reading that most software programs are used to about ten percent of their potential. The other day, I was watching a consultant who works for us download a file from his email. He opened the email, opened the PowerPoint document, and then went to Save As in the menu and saved it in a folder. I reached over and, using the mouse, simply dragged the item into the folder. He couldn't believe it was that easy. For years, he had been saving attachments as separate docs, not knowing you could simply drag them into the folder of choice. Fortunately, this was not a technology consultant, but his company had never had any technology training at all. The skill level was embarrassing. I suggest that every company have some kind of ongoing and continuing technology training, so that all employees know how to use the technology they have in the fastest, most efficient way possible. There are excellent tutorial software programs out there that teach you how to use technology effectively. The best way to conduct technology training is to have mandatory times when this will occur, and to make it fully interactive. As the instructor goes through the material, each person should follow along by executing each task for himself. Simply showing employees how to perform some operation does not mean they will be able to do that operation on their own. Those who are good with technology often get impatient with those who aren't. They just want to grab that mouse and show them how it's done. I have a technology person like that on my staff, and I constantly swat his hand away and insist that I do the clicking myself, so I learn better. And again, the key here is repetition. Better to teach five shortcuts and repeat them three weeks in a row during your training sessions, than to teach five new shortcuts every week and have none of them stick. We are all so busy doing our jobs that we don't take time to learn these shortcuts. For example, I like to enlarge the type on my screen so that I don't have to use my glasses while working on my computer, and then I have to remember to put the font size back to normal size type before sending the document on to a client. One day, while my tech expert was watching me do this, he showed me that right on the menu bar of Word there is a little window where you can enlarge the view without enlarging the actual type itself. Simple, fast, and I never have to remember to change the size of the type. Over the years, I have surely wasted a month of my time enlarging type and setting it back to normal size. There are probably dozens of things you do for which some genius programmer has created shortcuts. Another way to learn technology, if you are a high-level executive, is to go through some of your normal tasks while a more technical person watches over you and shows you shortcuts. Email is another area where training is key. I was the last person to do email, and now I can't live without it. But I learned it by having an expert watch over my shoulder and walk me through it, and then come back several times during the course of the week to show me more and more shortcuts and easier ways to do things. Same with PowerPoint. I couldn't live without these tools today. The productivity boost is enormous. Now let's introduce the most powerful training you can possibly conduct in any company or department: workshop training. Workshops are a powerful way to facilitate training, improve skills, and implement new procedures. This method is so effective for improving any company, department, issue, or skill that we have devoted an entire chapter to it. 
In the next chapter, you will learn how to use workshops to solve every problem in your organization and improve any skill area. Exercise. What's your training plan? Everything works better with a plan, so jot down the answers to the following questions to begin creating your unique training plan. Write down whatever comes to mind, even if you don't know where to begin. In the next chapter, you will learn how to get very clear on how to develop your training plan by using these notes to create an organized program. What kind of training are you going to provide? Who, which departments or people need what kind of training? Why, what's the impact going to be? When are you going to conduct the training? How? What methods will you use? And why are they the best for the material you'll cover? Conclusion Developing a regular and consistent training program will enable you to effectively and systematically accomplish the following. Train new employees who can hit the ground running. Upgrade knowledge and skills of existing employees so that everything they do works better, smarter, faster. Provide continuous professional development so your staff becomes more and more effective. Solve any and all problems that come up in your organization. If you take the time to sharpen skills and improve knowledge in every possible area, your company will start to run better, smarter, and faster, like a finely tuned sales machine. The companies that conduct the best training will own the future. So, train constantly, train with enthusiasm, and train as you entertain. Lastly, and this is not to be overlooked, train or feel the pain. With consistent training every week in every area of your company, you can put higher and higher standards into place and raise the bar of performance for your entire staff. If you really want to become the ultimate sales machine, training is an absolute must at every level, no matter how large or how small you might be. 3. Executing Effective Meetings How to Work Together to Improve Every Aspect of Your Company Using Workshop Training The best way to build the ultimate sales machine and to keep it running as smoothly as possible is to hold regular, highly productive workshop-style meetings dedicated to improving every aspect of your business. In each of these meetings, you will focus all of the relevant people on fixing just one small part of the business. Together, you will brainstorm plans for how to improve this specific area, draft procedures to test, and ultimately create carved-in-stone company policies that everyone will be trained to follow. This constant attention to what I call the three P's, planning, procedures, and policies, is essential if you want to easily and quickly grow your business into the ultimate sales machine. One of my clients became one of the fastest-growing companies in America, hiring 50 new people a week. Here's a question for you. Could your company hire 50 people this week and weave them seamlessly into your organization? And before you answer, could you then hire another 50 people next week? Whether you're a Fortune 500 company or haven't hired even your first employee, you need to have the systems in place that would make hiring 50 people every week a breeze. This makes the difference between success and failure. A company that thinks like a small company remains small. A company, even a one-person army, that thinks and acts like a big company is going to grow faster, smarter, and better. Most entrepreneurial companies don't install enough of the three Ps. 
Larger companies are more likely to have the three Ps in place, but most don't go far enough in perfecting and implementing them. In this chapter, you will learn how to take any company or department to the next level through weekly workshop meetings focused on further developing the three Ps in every aspect of your business. While you are improving the company, you need to be thinking like this. What if I were hiring 50 people next week and I wanted all of them to enter the business and quickly be able to perform at peak levels? What kind of a training program do I need in place to do that? So, for example, as you are improving your current sales effort, document everything as you go. You will be creating a training manual for future hires, even if, like this client, you are not hiring a single additional person right now. By thinking this way, you are forced to spell out each and every step. Leave nothing, or very little, for the imagination. The Large Company Model Large companies typically already have training and procedure manuals, but they don't always go deep enough. Far too much is left up to individual interpretation. For example, I've never seen any company, short of those that have had my training, that has well-planned and executed follow-up procedures after a sales call. That is almost always left to the individual salesperson. When you do that, the quality of follow-up is going to vary widely. I recently looked to buy a new vehicle to tow my boat. The salesperson took my card, but I never heard from him. Instead, to my surprise, I got a quality control follow-up call. After a few questions, the person got around to asking why I didn't buy. I told them why. The trade-in offer was thousands below the Kelly Blue Book value. I then asked a few questions of my own and found out that the dealer had hired a group to do the follow-up. Here, an entire side business has been born, selling telephone follow-up to dealerships that can't seem to figure how to properly manage that practice internally. This is not to say that you have to dictate what the follow-up is supposed to be. No, that is another mistake most executives make. All you have to do is have meetings where these things are discussed and developed. This is to say that you should have great follow-up procedures, but the folks in the trenches can help develop them. They will buy in much better to procedures that they themselves help to create. This chapter explains how. It is essential that you schedule at least one hour a week to work on the three Ps. In the words of my good friend Michael Gerber, author of E-Myth, this is working on the business, not just in the business. CEOs of large businesses and businesses that want to be large must do more of this. Here's how. Many organizations achieve small, if any, real improvement year in and year out, and CEOs don't know where to begin to change this. A typical problem I see over and over again is that the CEO or department head believes that he has to think of all the solutions to every problem that arises in his company or department. If you have a good staff, they will fill you with ideas on not just the problems but how to fix them, even ones you didn't know existed. Just ask them. I always tell my clients, if you have a good staff, the only thing you need to bring to a meeting or workshop is your judgment. Keep in mind that when you ask your people what the problems are, they're going to tell you. You might not like what you hear, but this is the first step to finding and fixing the leaks and glitches holding you back from being the ultimate sales machine. Workshops
Workshops are an excellent method of focusing your mind and everyone else's on solutions and improvements within your organization. Workshopping means that instead of you talking and your staff listening, all of you get to work together on a problem, developing the ideas and insights to propel the company forward. If you are a medium or small-sized company, you can invite every employee to participate. You never know from where the big ideas are going to come. Sometimes receptionists offer excellent solutions to problems in other departments because they are the first point of contact with any customer. So they may understand the customer's needs better than the high-level executives. Large companies should have workshop meetings every week for every department. The Benefits of Workshop Training Workshops help the company bond together as a team. Often, if you ask six people the same question, you will get six different answers. For example, if you ask six people at many companies what's the most important strength of their company, product, or service, you will get six diverging answers. That is not a good thing. And workshops will help you to unite employees and create a more powerful vision at every level of the company. Even more important, workshops offer an opportunity to create synergy in your organization. You will find that the ideas you generate as a group will be light years ahead of what any one of you, including the CEO or department head, would have created on your own. At the same time, workshops also give the company or department leader a rare opportunity to influence attitudes, ideas, and the direction of the company. Step-by-step step to an outstanding workshop. The first thing you need to do is schedule your weekly meetings with your staff. If your organization consists of fewer than 30 people, you can have the entire staff in your first workshop. If you have more than 30 people, you may have department-specific workshops. If you are a one-person army, you can do the workshops by yourself, and the result will still be profound. Schedule workshops for the next year and put them on the company calendar as non-negotiable requirements of everyone's job. Start them this week. Next, you need to decide what you are going to work on in your first meeting. You may have an obvious thorn in your side, like the lack of good time management practices or an ineffective referral program that you will want to work on right away. However, for most companies and departments, let me suggest an excellent first workshop. Ask every person in the room to give three examples of how to improve some aspect of the company or department. Do not ask people to give answers immediately. Let them work on it. Give them three minutes to think about their answers, and you will get better answers. Tell them that if they come up with three things fast, they can go ahead and write more. Then go around the room and ask every person what they wrote. Note that the leader of the workshop has the most control over the experience and the outcome. It's important to make this a positive experience. You want people to look forward to these meetings as a time when the group will work together and each person will be listened to with respect. As people state their issues, make sure you are clear on what they are saying. Restate it in such a way that you will all remember what was said. Then write down each issue on a whiteboard or easel pad. The meeting leader is responsible for keeping the meeting moving. After a few folks have shared duplicate ideas, say the following. Okay, so we can get input from everyone. If you have something that has already been stated, you don't have to state it again. You will be amazed at how everyone wants to tell you everything they wrote down, even after you say that you don't want duplicate input. Don't be impatient. Just gently say, Good, those are already up here on the whiteboard. So, folks, to keep this moving, don't give me duplicates. Next. 
If your staff is spread out all over the country, you can still do this workshop by telephone. Keep a list of everyone's name in front of you so that you make sure to get input from everyone. To make this run smoothly via telephone, you need to make sure that everyone numbers each item and writes down the same statement the same way so that you can refer to them later without causing confusion. Here's how your teleconference might go. You. Okay, Kelly, give us your ideas on how we could improve this department. Kelly. We could use well-crafted follow-up letters after we've interacted with a customer. I can't believe some of the letters I've seen going to customers. Spelling errors, poor grammar, you name it. You. Great. Everybody, write this down for number four. Create standard follow-up letters. You can later return to number four or five or eight, and everyone stays with you. You won't have to read the entire statement every time you want to refer to it. Taking Action on Workshop Ideas As a result of your first workshop, you will have a list of things you need to work on to improve your business. In a moment, I will show you how to prioritize the idea list into a master list you will use in planning future workshops. Each one of those items needs its own workshop to solve the problems or remove the obstacles. So, keep the list and methodically work through each issue until you have solved the problem. As you do these workshops, many things will surface that are easy to fix, create, or improve, but other things will surface that are worthy of sustained attention, as they are going to take time to fix. Right there on the spot, the boss can assign to-dos for specific people to own and get accomplished before the next meeting. Often, larger, more cumbersome items will come up that require several people to work together. These may be things that require technology or involve different systems or levels of staff. In these cases, you need to prioritize and properly delegate. As the workshops are creating procedures and policies to solve problems, the leader of the workshop puts out a post-workshop memo that says, This week's workshop solved the problem of customer service inconsistencies. Here are the nine things you can do when a customer is unhappy. That memo goes into a procedure binder, and that becomes a training manual for new people. Each memo is a page or two, and so at the end of the year, you will have 50 to 100 pages that document an entire year's worth of workshops. As you test and finalize the procedures into policies to address each issue, you take out the old memo and replace it with the new, more thoroughly developed policy. This works best when someone is assigned the responsibility of updating the binder to reflect all of the growth and learning curve of the company. This simple workshop is the first thing I do as an outside consultant when I go in to improve a company. For many of them, it has opened the door to creating lasting positive change. Here's an example. Fixing 18 10-year-old customer service problems in two hours flat. Recently, I sat 20 employees of a publishing company down to do their first workshop. I asked this question. What are the things standing in the way of this being a much better company? We put the list up on the whiteboard and then prioritized it. One of the obstacles was that there were too many inconsistencies in how the customer service people handle complaints. So, we took that single statement and focused the next workshop on it, asking folks to list examples of where this occurred. There were 18 distinct inconsistencies noted by the staff, where this company had never bothered to create standard procedures or policies by which people could operate. 
As a result, many of these eighteen issues appeared hundreds of times during a given year, and most of them ended up being dealt with by the president himself. Yet, like most presidents, he was so busy that he never stopped to create permanent solutions. This was partly because he couldn't immediately and easily think of what those solutions might be. Again, here is a case where the president believed he had to solve all the problems. You don't. Have a meeting with the people dealing directly with the problems and simply ask for solutions. So I gathered the staff into a room, and in one hour we collectively solved nine of the eighteen issues. The following week we solved the other nine. Most of these issues simply needed to be addressed one time with the president in the room. In some cases, we created form letters that dealt with the problem. In other cases, we put a section on the website that listed standard answers to some of the issues that arose. This particular publishing company had made some choices in its editorial content that often brought about complaints from parents who purchased products for their children. When customers complained, the customer service rep would then say. Thank you for bringing this up. You are not the first one to do so, and we appreciate your input. Honor the customer. We've addressed this specifically, and I'm going to send you a link to our website where you can read our perspective on this issue. If after reading that you are still not satisfied, please get back in touch with me. Issues that go beyond our company policies are addressed quarterly by our president. So if you do not feel satisfied by how we address this issue, please let us know. On the website, the issue was addressed thoroughly with compelling copy that explained why the company operated the way it did. Now, instead of the president dealing with some of these issues daily, he would only need a quarterly meeting to look at cases where someone was not satisfied with the company's policy or position. The other thing we did was to develop a hierarchy of solutions the customer service reps could offer to keep the customer happy. In other words, each rep was authorized to offer a solution. If the customer was still unhappy, the rep could offer another solution. If the customer was still unhappy, the rep could even offer a third solution. This procedure empowered the customer service people with levels of actions they could take before needing to involve a supervisor. It is amazing to think that this company had labored under so many basic problems for a decade, and we solved them within two hours using focus and communication in a workshop-style meeting. Imagine if you planned, tested, and established policies for every step of the sales process, from prospecting to cold calling to initiating interaction with customers to rapport building, and right on through to every detail of follow-up. When a new salesperson comes in, wham! There, in one place, is the collective input, learning curve, and intelligence of all the salespeople, spelling out best practices for every step of the sales process. How much faster can the new salesperson enter the game of selling, and how much better is that salesperson going to be if you had this kind of training in the first few days? Continuing workshops, with a training tool like that, pretty soon you'll be able to hire fifty people in one week and turn around and do it again the next week. Workshops help any company at any size get all the current activities working much more like the ultimate sales machine. The key is to do continuing workshops. In fact, here are step-by-step -step instructions for another workshop with a specific problem you're trying to solve. If you want to get the most out of this, you'll need to actually do these exercises with your staff. Follow the instructions in the order presented, doing each step as you go. You'll get more out of the experience. This is a great workshop for everybody to do. 
What is something else you can offer the buyer at the point of sale? Step 1. Appoint the person to lead the group. In small companies, the CEO is often best unless he or she wants to defer to someone else in the group. If you're a one-person army, do it by yourself. It will be very valuable. Step 2. On a whiteboard, write down the focus question. What is something else we can offer our buyer at the point of sale? Side note on this workshop. In my experience of implementing this particular workshop, after we are done and have tested various offers, we have found that one out of three people will buy something else if offered at the point of sale. The most expensive thing you have to do today as a business is to acquire new customers. Once those customers are in the door, anything else you sell them increases profit margins dramatically. So every company should have add-on sales at the point of purchase. In one case, I worked with a calendar company that got some stores to put spinners, racks that hold the calendars, up by the cash register. And the cashier would say, have you picked out a pictorial calendar? We have 26 different types, and they make great gifts for around $10. About one out of every three people would buy a calendar. Many would buy a few as gifts. And here's a great spin that you definitely want to consider when you're trying to increase your profits. I know a software company that struck a deal with another software company to add on a complementary product. The first company sold the second company's software, and the two companies split the profits. The first company had done the hardest part, acquiring the customer. It was able to increase its profit per customer by adding an additional product from another company that it didn't even have to develop. So, as a side note to all companies, this is a very good exercise. Let's continue with how you might get more ideas for this. Step 3. Now have participants in the group write down on their own pad every single idea that comes to them. Give everyone a few minutes to work on this. Don't let them call out ideas. The leader must participate as well. You'll see that most of the people will run out of ideas after about two minutes, so that is a good period of time. If you're doing this by yourself, the exercise is the same. Write down everything you can think of that you could offer your buyers. The benefit, of course, of doing this with a team is that among everyone in the group, you're going to think of a lot more possibilities. Do not read ahead. Stop here and do the exercise. Step 4. Now the leader of this exercise will ask participants to give their ideas. The leader will write them down on the whiteboard, summarizing them as he or she goes. Step 5. Prioritize. Now organize a vote to decide which ideas would work best. People's opinions will change as the collective intelligence of the group is shared. Here you want to get a general consensus. Have participants look at the whiteboard and rank their number one, two, and three choices. In other words, what do they think is the most important thing to do, the second most important, and the third? Have the group write down their answers, thinking through their choices. You've got 30 seconds, so go. Do not read ahead. Stop here and do the exercise. Step 6. The leader of the group will then ask each person to give his or her choices. Next to each choice on the board, you're going to write three slashes for a ranking of first choice, two slashes for second choice, and one slash for third choice. Now tally up the totals. The highest number will be the group's collective first choice, and so on. 
The items receiving the highest number of votes are the ones you're going to work to integrate using more workshops to do so. Cut it off at the five top training ideas, maybe six if you must have one more. Your whiteboard will now look like this. One, additional service one, 17 marks. Two, additional service two, seven marks. Three, additional service three, 12 marks. Four, additional service four, six marks. Five, additional service five, etc., five marks. At the end of the exercise, you'll have some clear winners. As you can see, one and three got the most votes. Step seven, implementation. There are ten steps to implement any new concept for any company. We're going to spell those out shortly. Once you see what you can accomplish with workshops, you will no doubt be hungry for more. Do them every week, and in a year you'll be an entirely different organization with dramatic improvements in every area of your business. Just stop everything once per week for an hour to fix all the things in your business that aren't the way you would like them or to add new improvements to strengthen your business or your profits. Example. Let's go back to the carpet cleaning company as a great example of each aspect of the workshop, as well as the implementation. My carpet cleaner client sent me recordings of some of the salespeople talking to customers. I'm listening to this salesperson talk to a 78-year-old woman who uses a walker to get around. She's calling to have her rug cleaned. They set up the appointment for the rug to be picked up and taken back to the plant. Wall to wall has to be cleaned in the home, where they have a giant washing machine-like structure to completely submerge, clean, and expertly dry your rug. The conversation with the elderly woman goes like this. Woman, well, what about the pad under the rug? It's kind of dirty, too. Salesperson, how old is the pad? Woman, it's about 15 years old. Salesperson, oh, that's too old. If we tried to clean it, we'd obliterate it. Woman, well, I guess I'll have to get a new pad. Salesperson, oh, yeah, you're definitely going to have to replace that. Since I'm the consultant and I know how expensive it is to get new clients, I think they should sell pads. Heck, they've got the rug right there in the plant. They could put the rug on the padding, cut it out, roll it up, and send it right back with the rug. It's a great upsell. So I get the owner on the phone. I have a great idea for you. You should sell pads. He says, we do. I tell him, no, you don't, actually, and I play him the recording. The owner brings the salesperson in and asks her why she didn't offer to sell this old woman a pad. The salesperson says, I didn't want to seem too pushy. This carpet cleaning company actually had six excellent upsell options. The problem was getting the salespeople to offer them. In addition to carpets, they can clean your couch or your bed. The technology of using hot steam to clean your carpet can be applied to the furniture you sit on or your dog sits on all day. Studies show that the average living room has five million dust mites in it. Our bodies are equipped to deal with those mites, but their feces and the bacteria that feed on it can cause bacterial infection. As you can see here, and we'll learn in depth in the next chapter, market data can be very motivational. Steaming that bed or couch kills germs. We gathered all the salespeople in a workshop and asked them, what would you say is the best method of offering every client every service every time? One suggested we put the six services they offer right on the order form. As they're talking to the client, they would be able to check off all six things on the order form to show they offered them. This was a great suggestion, so we decided to test it and implement it as a procedure for the company. 
We followed ten simple steps, and, after several months of pig-headed discipline and hard work, we had it so that every salesperson offered every service to every customer every time. Now, let's go over the ten steps to implement new concepts, change, and growth into your organization. Ten Steps to Implement Any New Policy One of the finest executives I've ever known is Scott Hallman of Business Growth Dynamics, who built a company up to be Inc. Magazine's 59th fastest-growing company out of 500. He is the executive I mentioned earlier who was so systematized he was hiring 50 new people a week. In fact, at the height of Scott's growth, he was hiring 55 new people every week. Scott has since gone on to become a trainer himself, teaching people how to enhance profit in their organizations and also how to implement. The following uses some of Scott's ideas as a foundation, along with some of my experience in the field and as a trainer who has had to master implementation. 1. Get everyone to feel the pain. To create real change in any organization, you have to help everyone, including yourself, to define, outline, and intensify the pain of not fixing the problem. When people start to think about their problems, they put themselves in the mood to learn, and that's the mood you want them to be in to get profound results. The first time I did a Fortune 500 implementation, I went in and conducted an audit. I had good ideas and presented them to the CEO. He was impressed and felt his fee was well spent. He flew his entire sales team, 255 people, to Denver, where I presented my ideas to them. They intellectually understood them, but they only half-heartedly agreed with them. The next day they went out and tried them here and there. The ideas didn't work right away, so the salespeople abandoned them almost immediately, and the program totally failed. You probably already know what kind of person I am. Failure doesn't go over very well with me. I don't take on clients and then fail them. I learned right then and there that having a system for implementation was much more important than the ideas I might have for growing a company. The first thing you need to do if you want people to change is to show them why what they're doing now isn't working. Make it as intense as possible. One of the best ways to put people in pain is to ask them what challenges they are facing. The next time I did a large-scale implementation, I started with this exercise. There were a few hundred salespeople in the room. I began by asking them to list the biggest problems they were meeting in the market. I then had the salespeople form groups to discuss and vote on the group's agreed-upon problems. Misery loves company. I had an entire room complaining about their competition, lack of time, the challenges to get in the door, and so on. I had some rather profound solutions to their problems, but they required a radical upgrade in selling over what they had been doing. In order to get them open for something that needed a new learning curve, I knew I had to put them in a lot of pain with their current model. After the groups discussed their problems, I had each group tell me the top three challenges that they had voted on. I wrote all their problems on the whiteboard and then asked them if they liked having these challenges. I asked how many people in the room would like to solve these challenges. What if there were ways to solve these challenges, but they required you to gain an entirely new learning curve? What if it took a little extra work in the beginning to gain this learning curve, but once you had it, it would dramatically reduce many, if not all, of these challenges? How many here would look forward to the new learning curve? 
I used the group questions format as discussed in the previous chapter in order to get the buy-in. I had learned the secret to creating change. You have to put people in pain. Using the practical example of the carpet cleaner, we first showed those salespeople how they were not serving their clients. Here was this old woman with a walker trying to figure out on her own how to get a rug pad. They could have helped her, but they didn't. Second, we did a matrix that showed them how their commissions would be impacted if only one out of every five people took just one of the upsells. In the course of the past year of not doing the upsells, they had potentially already lost $20,000 in commissions. Talk about motivation to adapt to a new strategy. Another exercise to increase the pain of not changing is to simply have everyone work on that. Tell them to each write down what are the drawbacks of not changing or improving this behavior, and then list those drawbacks. Let them intensify their own pain. 2. Hold a workshop to generate solutions. We've already covered this. If you are in a management position or are the CEO, you only have to bring with you to this workshop questions and your judgment. Whatever the problem, your staff deals with it every day. They will have many ideas on how to solve it. We asked the sales staff what would be the best way to make sure they offered all six services every time they talked to a client. As stated, the solution that ultimately solved the problem was to list the six services on the order form and require salespeople to check them off as they offered them to the client. 3. Develop a conceptual solution or procedure. You've isolated what you want to work on, offering the upsell every time, and you have a plan for what procedures you will follow to do this. You might even have scripts, outlines, and cheat sheets. In the case of the carpet company, putting the list of services on the order form was the conceptual solution. We say each solution or procedure is conceptual until it is proven by you and your staff. In this case, it is cut and dry, but other solutions you attempt may not be so simple. These more complex solutions will need to be worked on in this phase of your implementation. In order to have the salespeople go through the list of services every time, we had to present them in a way that positioned what we were doing as servicing the customer and not selling to the customer. We developed some dialogue to make this happen, such as, We feel it's our obligation to alert you to other services that you might want to take advantage of today, so I'm just going to list these for you. If you have an interest, I can go into more detail. The salesperson would then give a sentence or less on each upsell. Often, this prompted questions. Recently, I activated a new credit card. Usually, this is all done by electronic recording. This time, the recording said, Please hold for an operator. I thought that something must be wrong, but to my surprise, the only thing the operator did was try to sell me additional services, protection plans, group buying discounts, and so on. Here's a company that, instead of automating the activation process, decided to use it as another opportunity to touch down with buyers and thus potentially increase profits. In order to get this implemented, I'm sure they tested scripts and went through the steps I'm outlining in this section. Back to testing. Do this step for any area for which you don't have a procedure. Using upsells as an example, how many upsells do you have and how many different ways do you offer them? How does your company or department generate referrals? How do you address customer service complaints? How do you bond and follow up with clients? If you don't have an answer for each one of these questions, or if each member of your staff has a different answer, 
then you will need to create and test procedures in order to implement policies that will be followed by every member of your organization.